welcome to B-Side, where we revisit business world stories. In this episode, Editor-in-Chief Wilfredo G. Reyes chats with CNN's former Beijing bureau chief, Jaime Jimmy A. Flor Cruz, who has witnessed China's dramatic changes since the closing years of Mao's tumultuous cultural revolution. Let's listen to their conversation, which covers the relationship between the Philippines and China, and whether the Philippines has played its cards well halfway into the Duterte administration. Jimmy, good morning. Good morning. It's a pleasure to have a China expert with us today. Thank you. I'll just go through some questions on Philippine-China relations, and I'd like to get your views about them. Mm -hmm. So, seeing what you've seen more than halfway into this administration. Did we have the right idea when President Duterte said in October 2016, he declared his separation from Washington and alignment with Beijing and Moscow? Did we get it right at that time? Did we do the right thing? On a big picture look at it, I think we did. Because I think it's best for the Philippine national interest to strike a balance between the global players around the Philippines. I mean, we happen to be a neighbor of China, a huge rising power, but also an ally or an old friend of America. And the two big powers are now locked in this rivalry for influence, if not control, of the world, and especially in our neighborhood. And so I think it makes sense if we distance between the two what they speak of independent foreign policy. It's easier said than done, of course. But I think what the Duterte administration is trying to do, which is to be friends of everyone and enemy of none, makes sense as long as we proceed from the national interests of the Philippines. At that time, even as late 2016, There were promises of bigger Chinese investments and hopes for bigger assistance. I noticed that China right now is one of our top trading partners. Okay, so that's one that's one field. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to Chinese investments and Chinese assistance, some critics have said that kulang pa compared to what was promised. What do you say to observations like that? I think there is good reason to say that kulang pa. I think there is a lag between what was promised and what is being delivered, especially in terms of what is tangible. I think what we need to see are tangible benefits from an improved relations with China. Yes, tourism has increased and has brought revenues and jobs to the Filipinos, so that's good. Trade is better, has improved. We are buying more. We are also selling more. And so that's good. But in terms of infrastructure projects, for example, I wish that the Chinese will come through with tangible projects, bridges, roads, railway projects. Of course, part of the problem is the Philippine side. We need to be ready to absorb whatever has been promised or allocated. We need to have viable research to make those infrastructure projects possible. We also need to have our public opinion ready for that. You know, there's a lot of pushback. It will take some time because if you look at the SWS surveys. Exactly. The Chinese also need to do their part in public diplomacy, in projecting China's 
softer side of its power rather than just its hard power, military power, for example. And that explains why China's trust rating in the Philippines is low, because I think China has not done a good job in public diplomacy. Their relations with Malacanang maybe is very good, but their impact and their image among Filipinos leaves much to be desired. Taking off from the 19th China Communist Party Congress, that was October 2017. That was a congress that launched this idea of a new era mm -hmm. for China. It will see a more assertive China, and not only in terms of the economy, mm -hmm. but he also talked about a world-class military. Right. When you are faced like that, what is a small country like the Philippines supposed to do? How are we supposed to position ourselves? Well, that's the challenge because China being so big and, you know, massive geopolitically, right, population, the military, the economy is now number two in the world. Yeah. It instills or creates fear mm -hmm. or at least concern among mm -hmm. neighbors like the Philippines, smaller, more vulnerable in a way. And so first, I think we need to understand China because China is so complicated so complex no uh, we need to understand its history and its reality we need to know where China is coming from what is its goals its ambitions and why do they have that such an ambition why do they behave a certain way and not the other way that we hope and that is why I think there is a lot of misunderstanding or lack of understanding among Filipinos about China. And we need to do our job in understanding China, but the Chinese also do their job in explaining China. China's rise is good for Chinese, but also for the world, as long as it emerges into a benign power, right? But China has not been in this position for centuries. China has never enjoyed a stable period that they have in the past 30 so years and that's that explains why china has risen no it's been spared of civil wars and occupation or invasion but china needs also to figure out themselves what it's like to be a global power even talking to chinese i always tell them maybe china should slow down a bit it's been you know changing so fast but I think the current epidemic that they're fighting now is probably a good wake-up call for China that perhaps they should slow down a bit and take care of its own people better, spend more time, more resources in making itself strong domestically because, after all, it can be quite vulnerable. This shows that however strong you are, militarily or economically, an invisible virus mm. can actually cripple you if you do not invest enough on public health, on research. China has been technologically you know, very innovative and has made a lot of progress on that, but they cannot be complacent. And I think this uh, epidemic that they are now confronting is a good wake-up call and hopefully they'll find their bearings and they'll be able to move forward in a steady way. So you're talking uh, about this current outbreak problem that we have 
both, well, it's a problem. It's also an opportunity for China to put a new face out there. Yeah, right? exactly. It's a good chance for China to show that they're mature and they're stable mm-hmm. and, and put a good face if they learn the right lessons from this. Mm-hmm. And they should for their own sake, but mm-hmm. also for the sake of the world. Now, it's probably too early to write off China simply because of this. I still think that they will bounce back mm-hmm. from this. They will, they'll conquer this virus epidemic eventually, but it will cost them a lot. I mean, the economy will suffer for sure. People will suffer. Some people project maybe the GDP growth will mm, yeah. will be uh, much slower than projected. Mm-hmm. Tourism, manufacturing, mm-hmm. trade will suffer. Mm-hmm. But the Chinese have shown resilience, mm-hmm. you know, in the past. And so in that sense, I think they have the capacity mm-hmm. to bounce back. Part of the problem is the Chinese top-down system, right? Which some say is part of the reason why they were fairly slow in reacting to it. You know, like I'm sorry, when you say top-down, it means the, orders are given from the top, from the and top, you just it's, got to authoritarian to execute it, right? Less yeah. lack of transparency, yeah. accountability. Yeah. yeah, it's top-down. So whatever the top says goes, but people on the ground has to wait for what the top says before they act. Yeah, but uh, I noticed quite recently, I've read some reports in some provinces, uh, some rural areas, there have been some unrest. Mm-hmm. How do you think that will change the way Beijing governs? Or will it even change anything at all? Well, in fact, over the years, they have been confronting unrest or instability. And that's China's primordial concern, mm-hmm. right? Stability. And that's why sometimes they seem to be paranoid or they shoot themselves in the foot precisely because they're afraid of instability. And they turn to err on the side of caution when it comes to risk of instability. The problem with that is it's partly because China has changed so much this past several years. China no longer is the monolith that It was under Mao 30 plus years ago. It has changed. Social changes have led to the emergence of vested interests. Whatever Beijing or the center wants may not necessarily fit the vested interests of the provinces or cities or industries. So the challenge for Beijing really is how to govern this 1.4 billion nation that is going very fast, but also going in different directions. And so that is the challenge. And that's why the leadership is trying to consolidate its hand. You know, a strong man leadership is, is coming through. And sometimes that, that causes problem paralysis mm-hmm. because there's too much power at the top. Mm. You've observed how different administrations in this government have dealt with China. What can you say about the way we have executed foreign policy towards China? Do they understand these finer points of what's happening in China? I think 
to a certain extent they do although i think sometimes we lose the big picture in dealing with china in other words i think sometimes we are caught in just bilateral issues but we forget that we are part of a big chess game that the chinese are playing in other words we tend to be sometimes parochial in the way we look at things and the way we formulate policies and so i think what is demanded of us is to look at the bigger picture all the time and to keep it in mind because if we are caught in this fight among elephants, we can just be trampled under. And at the same time, I think we need to keep our national interests in mind whenever we play in this global chessboard. Yeah, the big boys game. The big boys game. So if we can get something out of relations with China, why not? With Russia, why not? Mm-hmm. Keep our relations with Japan and the U.S. as good as they have been. Why not? Looking around, even just here in Southeast Asia, is there any country or government that could be a model for how we could deal with China better? Maybe to me, Singapore has mm-hmm. been doing good. Of course, it's unique. I mean, it's not the same as our relations, but Singapore has managed to be critical when they have to towards China, but also have kept a good, normal, especially economic and trade relations with China and benefited from that. Singapore has benefited from its relations with China through trade, finance, and at the same time still respected by the Chinese. I mean, especially when Lee Kuan Yew was in charge. The Chinese respected him grudgingly, maybe, mm-hmm. but they respected his opinion and respected his policies, even though sometimes he was critical. Mm-hmm. And I think his successors have kind of continued with that. So you don't think, for instance, like Vietnam would be a good model because some yeah, of some, some of the critics say that we should be like Vietnam. You know, they can carry on uh, an ordinary relationship with China, but China keeps its distance because Vietnam bites. And they do. And yeah. they have the ability to bite. I mean, mm-hmm. I think, again, the Chinese grudgingly respect the Vietnamese for that, for having beaten back Fran- the French invaders and yeah. the American invaders. And that's in their DNA. Also, it's in their centuries-old relations. You know, it's it's a love-hate relations, but also predicated on mutual respect for how tough they both are. We may not be able to match that kind of relationship as Vietnam does. But to a certain extent, yeah, we should also respect what they have been doing. And I think the bottom line is that we proceed with our national interests, whatever is good for our national interests and national sovereignty. Okay. Well, what's different between Singapore and the Philippines, of course, is our problem in the South China Sea. Right. Do you think it was right for us to put aside our victory in The Hague in 2016? Because some people are saying, okay, halfway into the administration, did we gain anything out of that? China or Beijing was just able to consolidate further its hold. Mm-hmm. in the area. What do you say to something like that? I'm not sure if we can say it's the right thing to do what we did before and what we did not do later, which is to assert it. I see the point. I mean, I've seen that nothing tangible, that good happened from the arbitrary ruling. No, But it's there. So I think I also understand why setting it aside 
In other words, not forfeiting it or not giving it up, but just setting aside in the meantime and pursue pragmatic relations with China. I think that works, one, because the other approach didn't really work. And this approach at least may bring something tangibly good for the Philippines mm. as long as we do not compromise mm. our territorial claims, our sovereignty. In a way, I think th that's where we are now. And hopefully, while we benefit from the change in approach, it will not be at the expense of our claims, our territorial claims. But do you think that that emboldened China to assert its claim in the area? Because you have reports, for instance, of the Coast Guard of China driving away our fishermen mm -hmm. so many kilometers away from the zone. Right. It may have, but I'm not sure if it would have changed such a behavior or attack of the Chinese. What we also need to do, I think, is build up our own capacity, military. They say, you know, if you cannot police it or if you don't have the ability to patrol the islands, mm. you don't own it, mm. right? So the bottom line, I think, is we need to build our own country, our own capacity economically and militarily, and then we should get the population behind such a policy. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you know, we can shout, you know, patriotic slogans, but unless it is backed by real power yeah. or ability, then it remains empty. Right now, the government has already signified to Washington the intention to junk the VFA. If you were the top guy in Beijing, mm -hmm. how would you take that? And you know, is there any opportunity that you will see in that? I guess I would look at it as yet another setback for the U.S. in the region. And they will feel that, you know, the U.S. is on the decline. It's unpopular in the region. And it's an opportunity for China. Although that could be wrong. I mean, I'm not sure the Chinese should necessarily look at it that way, you know. Because I think the U.S. is here to stay, with or without the VFA. I think we should not and cannot underestimate the power of the U.S. It's still the number one military and geopolitical power mm -hmm. in the world. And that China is just catching up. Of course, you know, the U.S. is afraid they're catching up too fast. But I don't think the U.S. has given up on... Mm -hmm. rebuilding its power and its presence in the region. Mm -hmm. So I think it's still too early to tell what mm -hmm. the VFA withdrawal will actually mm -hmm. mean in, in the big chessboard. Mm -hmm. And that the U.S. will have to wait how the U.S. will respond to this. But theoretically, if you were Beijing, how would you take advantage of a situation like this? Well, I think one can imagine that Beijing will offer a special military arrangement, if not an alliance with the Philippines. But I think that's probably premature at best or naive even to think that it's that easy. I mean, maybe on certain details. Certain I'll, level. No? Certain level. I'll sell, I'll, I'll sell you more or give you more armaments or we can train together. But it's different from what the U.S. 
has enjoyed in terms of military exchanges with the Philippines. I think the, the Chinese are still quite clumsy in the way they deal with this. And I wouldn't really expect them to do anything remarkably different. I think they'll watch, basically. They'll watch and see. Going back to that uh, mm-hmm. Chinese diplomacy, mm-hmm. this is a power that has been a central power for centuries You said that Beijing might fumble in responding to this opportunity. Why do you say that? For a power that's been a central power for centuries. Partly because I think the Chinese, having risen so quickly, I think China has yet to figure out how to be a global power. Yes, their diplomats are very astute and savvy, but in terms of having a functioning or an effective strategy in projecting its soft power, for example, or public diplomacy. I think they have yet to be good at that. They're trying using the pandas or the Mm. Peking Opera Mass or movies. But look, you know, compare them with the Japanese Mm. or with the South Koreans or certainly the Americans. Mm. The image building in the Philippines among the Filipinos. I mean, the Chinese are far, far from being successful. There is still a lot of misconceptions mm-hmm. or lack of information, lack of understanding among Filipinos of China and of Chinese. Even though we have huge yeah. population of uh, overseas Chinese here, mm-hmm. the Korean telenovelas, for example, are very popular. K-pop, for example, mm-hmm. is very popular here. But the Chinese, who can name a Chinese but, but uh, people in Beijing, they have the help of formid- formidable think tanks, right? I mean, their think tanks are quite good. Yeah. Doesn't that help? I think their think tanks are sometimes are very good, but in a very academic way. They are not as good in terms of producing things that appeal to the ordinary people, mm. to the public to the masses right again they're they're trying they're trying you know with through their media for example they're pushing they're building up their chinese media groups Mm -hmm. to create platforms for chinese so that their voices could be heard their stories could be told and i am you know i know many chinese friends who are in that job but at best they are you know, they have checkered records mm-hmm. in terms of succeeding in doing that. It's work in progress for them. Mm-hmm. And again, it's partly because of inexperience or lack of experience. It's partly because over the years, lack of interaction with the outside world and inability to adapt their narrative, their tone, their messaging mm-hmm. to a, a way that is accessible or acceptable to you know, the general public. We already touched on the low level of trust of China among ordinary Filipinos as seen in past surveys. We've seen reports of uh, POGOs Mm -hmm. and related ills. Do you think the fears about the entry of POGOs and the problems these establishments bring, do you think that's just a function of this low level of trust or is this really a result of our closer uh, relationship with China? I don't I don't think Pogo in the Philippines is a good idea even though I know it brings a lot of revenues. Mm-hmm. Of course they they hardly pay taxes down mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. that's a practical issue. Mm-hmm. Yes, they create some jobs, it boosts real property prices. That's right. 
which may not always be good for some. But I see the unintended consequences of mm. Pogo. But this operating. is a problem that came about because we are closer now to China. We see Pogo sprouting about. Or do you think it's a fear born out of the lack of trust of Filipinos? Well, I think it's both, but it, it started because the Pogos have moved here in such a big way. Mm-hmm. And I mean, on the one hand, problem is the Chinese Pogos coming in. On the other hand, half of the problem is us, the Philippine side, allowing that here and not doing the necessary measures to regulate Mm-hmm. Pogos, but also to make sure that they do not bring the unintended consequences that we are now talking about: prostitution, criminality, uh, extremely high, you know, rental prices, for example. My fear is that, okay, if if we decide to get rid of pogos here, we we'll, we might have a a bubble, a big bubble collapse. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. say of the real property real estate, industry yeah. so i think for our sake we need to regulate it maybe squeeze it gradually so that we are not too dependent on the revenues of pogos but also so that we do not create the social problems the social ills that are attributed to it also i think for china's sake also i don't think the chinese should encourage Mm-hmm. The uh, pogos in in the Philippines. It's illegal in China. Bawal sa kanila. Bawal uh-huh. sa kanila. Uh-huh. It's also a channel for you money know laundering. illegal to uh-huh. money launder. So I think for both sides, it doesn't really make sense to keep it going. But again, my my suggestion is to squeeze it gradually and regulate it to the point that we can mitigate the problems they cause. I also am afraid of cultural clash that this could cause with so many Chinese, a hundred plus thousands, they say, mm-hmm. of Chinese in the Philippines now who are not familiar with the Filipino culture and are enclosed in their own Community. circles of yeah. communities. Mm-hmm. That's a formula for social and cultural clash mm-hmm. that I hope we can avoid. Okay. Finally, this government has two more years or maybe two and a half. What do you think should the government be targeting or doing in terms of Philippine-China relations up to the end of its term? I think it's a matter now of uh, keeping this top-level relations warm but also frank. I think that we should lay the issues on the table with them, including the territorial conflicts that we have. This is a good chance for the two sides to be, you know, upfront with our differences while at the same time improving further the relations. We hope the Philippines will pursue or follow up with the infrastructure projects that have been put on the table or are lined up. Uh, We hope the Chinese will come through with their part of the bargain. We also hope that, yeah, more trade, more jobs can be created. We hope the Chinese will open their markets to more Filipino goods and services. More jobs maybe can be uh, open to the Filipinos Mm -hmm. in China. We hope some reciprocity. I hope Mm there will be more reciprocity. And in the end, more tangible benefits that we Filipinos can see coming out of a better or improved relations with China. We Mm -hmm. have to see more bridges and roads and train routes and 
maybe MRT cars. There are many things that we can get from China if the Chinese will also be more generous. Well, uh, taking off from that, do you think there's anything that this government can be doing better in the next two years when it comes to Philippine-China relations? I think better delivery of goods or tangible benefits, mm-hmm. one. Two, also, I think this government should do a better job in explaining the China policy to the public. Of course, the Chinese will have to do their own side of that, but I think the Philippines side should do a better job in communicating with the public, with the Filipino public, because in in the end, for this policy to be sustainable, it should be backed by a more public support and that the Chinese trust rating Mm-hmm. should keep up with a positive approach to China that we have been following all these years. We hope that, yeah, it will be good for the Filipino national interest. And I think also we should promote more exchanges with China, with the Chinese. With exchanges, so it's like people to people? People to people, educational, uh, scientific, so that we can tap into where... The Chinese are strong while at the same time, um, you know, making them useful to to our our country's needs. Thank you for your views, Jimmy. You're welcome. That concludes another episode of B-Side. Once again, you heard Editor-in-Chief Wilfredo G. Reyes and CNN's former Beijing Bureau Chief Jaime Jimmy A. Flor Cruz discussing the relationship between the Philippines and China. This episode was recorded on February 13 at the Business World Studio. This is Sam El Marcelo. Thanks for listening.